always say it, it's that intersection of opportunity and preparation. Just always be prepared for whatever that next step is and just know that you, in many cases, don't have control over how it happens. People don't always see their full potential. So when leaders identify other strengths and nurture them, that can change the course of someone's life. I'm Rebecca Corin-Metter, and this is Moments Move Us, a people-first podcast unlocking the power of meaningful moments by bringing you stories that inspire. Jim Dunn, Executive VP and Chief People and Culture Officer at Atrium Health, says he's never had a job he hated, mostly because he always sought roles full of purpose and meaning. After starting his professional career as a research assistant, Jim went on to HR roles at institutions like the Carter Center and the American Cancer Society. Jim never intended to make the jump to the HR sphere, but he was plucked out of the research lab and given an unexpected opportunity. Throughout our conversation, you'll hear about other twists of fate along the way that spurred Jim on his professional journey, but he was only able to take advantage of them because he was open to the not-so-obvious. Before we get to all that, let's hear how Jim went from wearing a lab coat to a suit all those years ago. Many people don't know, particularly since most people know me as a professional HR leader, that my first career uh, was started out as a research scientist. So I was a chemistry undergrad, which you don't find many people in HR in that space. But my first job out of school was as a research scientist with Georgia Tech uh, in Atlanta. And from there, I moved on to progressively responsible roles with Georgia Tech and Amoco Corporation. So I went from, you know, scientists, I've done work as an epidemiologist, toxicologist. That was my early career. And it was uh, while working at Amoco Corporation, I had a, a meeting with our vice president of research. And during the meeting, he said, what's next for you? What do you want to do in three to five years? And at the time, I didn't really know, but I worked at an R&D center. And so there were either people in lab coats like myself or suits. And I would always wonder, the suits, they would be in these meetings like all day. And I was thinking, what can you talk about all day? <laughs> you know, I'm just thinking, they're just sitting there. And so I joked with him. But he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. I want to be in one of the meetings with the suits just to see what you guys are talking about in there. And he laughed. And, you know, we left it. Well, be careful what you play about or what you ask for, pray for, whatever it was I did back then. But maybe two, three months later, Amoco Corporation was headquartered in Chicago, and they decentralized all of their shared services operations, so HR, finance, personnel. And so he came and said, now the regions need to pick up leadership for these areas. He said, Jim, how about you serve as the interim head of personnel? I'm dating myself because it was definitely personnel back then. And I said, I don't know anything about that. And he said, just between you and I, it's not that hard. And to this day, I'm still looking for him to let him know it's the hardest thing I've ever done <laughs> in dealing with people. It was much easier running labs. So from that point, I went on and said, okay, great. I guess he took me serious. I went from lab coat to a suit and I went from zero direct reports to running a 6,000 person region for Amoco Corporation in the Southeast out of Atlanta. 
and I grew into HR and I learned to love it. And here I am 30 years later. Wow, Jim, that's amazing. And I love how you talked about the suits and the white coats. It's pretty good. Did you ever ask him what was it that made him feel like, yeah, go from zero direct reports and being a scientist to, to now running sort of personnel? I didn't ask him, but as I reflect, it's what he said, because I did tell him, I know nothing about HR. And he said, yeah, you know, but you get along with both suits and the labs because, you know, just like you imagine you have flight attendants and pilots, you have doctors and nurses and administrators in that environment. It was pretty much, as I called it, the suits or the lab coats. And I, I socialized with everyone. So I, he said that he felt that people would be more receptive to me because they knew me and the trust was there and that that would buy me time to learn it. But I was very fortunate to have some of the leaders in the HR department say, okay, well, you know, let's get you up to speed. They could have all been offended and left. They picked this kid out of the lab with no background. I even had one guy said, Jim, I just want to ask you, do you think this is a diversity move? I said, it could be, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, how would I know? <laughs> and he said, all right. So I was just honest with it. And I learned HR from my team and picking up some other certifications. But that's the only thing he said is that I got along with folks. Well, it definitely sounds like that is a core sort of beginning probably of being able to lead people. And I actually want to go back to what you said in terms of like the diversity move. I just can't gloss over that because I feel like we are in a time where we, I think, are looking at DEI in a totally different lens. Finally, people are awakened to what's going on in our society as a result of George Floyd and so many others. At the time, was that like something that was said sort of playfully? How did you take that? And how has that influenced you, if at all? Oh, well, no, it wasn't playful. I mean, this this person really did not know, but I had a relationship with him where he felt comfortable to ask. And I was honest to say, how would I know that? But the optics kind of led in that direction. You pick someone from with zero experience, but he also believed in me beyond what I was doing. And that's one of the things that I take to this day, that there will be people in your life, family, friends, colleagues, neighbors, who believe in you sometimes more than you believe in yourself. Had he not done that, I don't know, maybe I would have grown up to run all of the labs or who knows where I would have been. But one person could change the course of your life. And the topic of DNI, you're right, it's, it's at a very different level right now. I do have a story in my career. In a past uh, CHRO role, I was hiring for a diversity officer. And I'm just going to tell you what happened then and how it's relevant today. I was searching to hire for a chief diversity officer at the time. And I really had to fight to hire who I believe was the most qualified candidate. She was an internal candidate, had been with the organization 10 years, doing excellent work. She volunteered and worked extensively in 10 or 15 other countries, but it was always during her vacation. It was her personal life. She really knew well what it meant to live and collaborate with people who were different. Now, here's the kicker. She was white. And I had the search team, and I put her in as the internal candidate, and then there were external candidates coming in, and most of them were people of color. And whenever I would bring her in, you could see on the selection committee faces, like, why is Jim putting her in here? We really need someone who understands diversity. You see where I'm going. 
Sometimes it's the optics of what we believe diversity looks like. So in the end, I hired her. She became the best chief diversity officer in the history of that organization. And today has now moved on to become one of the strongest international voices in the diversity community today. And the reason why I'm not using her name is because, you know, she, she doesn't know I'm speaking on her and she may not want this story told. But just today to see where she is and how she's leading the diversity space, when I had to really, really fight and be very tenacious of getting her in that role. So that was an early lesson that you know I learned to be open to the not so obvious because she was not the obvious candidate. And I have today bringing it forward. In the last two years, I've had a handful of friends call me around advice for DE&I, roles that they have been offered. They came from all sorts of backgrounds, finance, marketing, operations, and HR. And people were reaching out to them for these new CDO roles. Though I believe roles like chief diversity officer are critical to an organization's success, I didn't suggest that my friends pursue those roles. Why? None of them had experience pertinent to the role. They just had the right optics. And of course, these friends, all people of color. So contrast that. I'm the guy who had to fight for the white female to get the role, you know, 20 years ago. And now I'm having friends, they're throwing the roles at them and they love the title and they love the money or whatever it is. But I'm, I ask, how are you going to be successful in that role? And one, is that a passion of yours? So that's just kind of how I think DE&I is very important. At Atrium, we have a for-all mission that we represent the people from not only the communities we serve, but the people who work with us every day. So very committed to DE&I, but I'm not a good person for window dressing. If we really want to do it, let's talk about how DEI programs impact your bottom line. Let's not only talk about representation and optics, because research shows that those companies with diverse leaderships are something like 35 or 40% more likely to outperform their competitors. There's research that says diverse teams make better decisions. I could go on and on. I just say, be real about diversity. The problem is real, so your solutions must be real as well. So lots of history in that space. Wow. Jim, thank you so much for sharing that. It's interesting because in this first sort of piece that we were talking about, which is how you kind of got into HR, you had someone that saw a glimmer of something that you're very skilled in, in terms of making connections with people and really understanding people. And that's really why I think you got elevated into that first role as a leader over the 6,000 people. And then when you talk about what you saw in this woman that you worked with and getting her into the DEI role, it's interesting because you also saw something in her. And I don't know if she hadn't seen that before, but it definitely was something that others maybe hadn't seen. It was her life passion. She would go to these other countries and she would always pack and expect to come back with nothing because she gave all of her clothes and shoes and she would just go on these mission trips and just give her life away. And one thing that I learned from that, I mentioned being open to the obvious, but how you recognize someone in a conversation I had with her during that process, she kept track of the countries that she visited. And she shared with me one place she wanted to visit, a bucket list sort of place. And I just remembered that. And at the time when we finally promoted her and put her in the role, we had a very standard formal 
recognition. If you go from this level to this, this is how we recognize you. I can't remember now, maybe a watch or money, but I knew that for her, the most important thing was for her to get to that other country that she had not been to. So what I did, instead of offering whatever that traditional recognition was for the promotion, we gave her a week's vacation to that country. And what I learned personally for that, still with me today, is that recognition should never be applied to everyone evenly, regardless of you know the merit. Different people respond differently to motivations. In that regard, her recognition reward was something that I'm sure she will remember to this day or does remember to this day that she checked something off of her bucket list from her first ever chief diversity officer role. So I've always over the years try to make now from that one moment recognition be as personal uh, as possible and incorporate an individual choice. That's a beautiful story of recognition. When you can meaningfully create something that really hits home for someone like the way you did for her, that will stick with her forever. And I think, you know, right now in healthcare, we have such a challenge because people are extending so far beyond what they ever used to have to in light of the circumstances with COVID that just a sort of flippant thank you or a, we appreciate you guys, like keep it up. That's not going to to hit the nerve where it needs to, to fill people up in order to keep coming up and showing up with their full selves at work. Absolutely. I mean, if you want people to really bring their whole self to work, you have to ask them, what is that? And what does that look like? People aren't comfortable to say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm stressed because I have three kids and they're working remote and I'm trying to get through this. So during the pandemic, we required our leaders to at Atrium Health currently to lean in and get to know people. And that's when you know what recognition looks like for them. That's what you know what well-being looks like. And that's how you know as an organization, if you want to keep them engaged with your culture, you have to reach out to them in a very meaningful way. And it's so much harder to do that. You know, it's so much harder to like really listen to people. It takes time because we're all busy, right? So I have to schedule like, okay, I'm going to reach out to these two leaders this week in a very meaningful, purposeful way because I have work to do as well. But if you just be very intentional about it, you, you could get through it. It may take you a couple of months, but you could get through it. And, you know, what we just discussed with the young lady and her first chief diversity officer role, it's good for both sides because I still today, here it is, 20 some 30 years later, I'm still talking about it and realizing that that one act changed how I view recognition today. It's really amazing when we think about moments that, that transformed us and maybe even the people who are involved in those moments don't know. Absolutely. But I tell you what, after this podcast, I will look her up on LinkedIn and send her a message to say, hey, let's catch up. I was just talking about you. <laughs> That's a great idea, Jim. I love that. I love that. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, you know, one of the things that you said earlier um, and you used uh, sort of this window dressing concept about optics and how a lot of people are going after optics. And when you're part of a really big organization, optics are important. There is something to be said about that. But going after optics and window dressing is never going to provide systemic change and the, the sort of core uh, transformation that you need. And I, I wonder if it's connected to your scientific background. I don't know. But what do you do to make sure that we're not just doing things that look good, sound good, that really do create change for people in our organizations? And how can we go beyond the optics? 
I'm glad you brought that up because I do not want to come across that optics are not important. For me to have an African-American president and CEO at Atrium Health, that goes noticed by all, right? The fact that I'm African-American in our executive suite, that's noticed. I get that. But what I always do, you know, when we start the DE&I conversation, I ask a lot of questions like, what are we looking for? And they're like, what, you, what do you mean? I said, we're going to hire a chief diversity officer. What would success for that person look like? Uh, six months, one year, three year, five year. And what I, I'm trying to do with those questions is seeing how well the decision has been thought out. A lot of people doing George Floyd created their first ever chief diversity and inclusion role, which is great. We said the world is woke. We're all woke. We're happy. But sometimes you create the role and don't know really what to do with it. I remember just recently I created a new role in HR because I had a need for a few things and I felt like bringing in a leader to coordinate this work would be great. But as I was going through the interview process, similar to this with just a dialogue, similar to this with the search firm, they were asking me these same types of questions. What would success look like for this person? What do you want them to do? And I realized that I really hadn't thought through it and that I probably had people on my team who could do this work. So therefore, that's what I did. I just added to the plates of my existing leaders, made some promotions there, and didn't bring on a person, because the last thing I wanted to do was to bring on someone who was happy to be with Atrium, but they were not engaged or fulfilled in a role because I hadn't thought through it. And I think that's what I'm seeing a lot of times with these new DE&I roles. And what I'm hearing from you really about getting beyond the sort of optics of things just generally, because I'm thinking about the recognition component too of the woman that you gave the, the vacation to is everything we need to do needs to be intentional. Because when we do things in a reactive state, what ends up happening is we don't necessarily get what we want or need. And I think that in a lot of ways, we're all running around in these uh, sort of going from thing to thing and we don't take the time to pause and dig deeper. And even in the conversations, you were talking about having conversations with people to understand what does well-being look for you. Getting to that core takes time and it takes a, a lot of awake you know, consciousness to the conversations we have. And, and you have to be authentic in your intentionality. We all know what it feels like if someone's just checking the boxes. You know, if I'm just asking each leader, how are you doing? Is there anything I can do for you? Oh, no, Jim, I'm fine. All right. Take care. Good seeing you. That's just like, how was your weekend? But if you take an hour and say, there's no work discussions, I don't need updates or anything. I just want to see how are you doing? And, you know, I know your husband was laid off at the beginning of the pandemic and how are the kids doing and how are you staying engaged? And just in that, people, one, are so appreciative. And then two, that's when you really learn what the, their needs are. And that's how you customize it to that individual. And you know, now that I hear you say this and we have the story around sending her to her bucket list location, as I think back, I think it was probably less expensive to do that than the reward we would have provided her. That probably wouldn't have meant anything. I mean, I don't know if she wanted a watch. Back in the day, we really used to give watches out. I, 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 remember, I remember people <laughs> getting watches left and right. <laughs> I know. And it's like, okay, I'm not even really a watch guy. As soon as they came out with cell phones, I'm like, done. I could tell the time. Why well, am I going to put something around my wrist? So anyone, you know, it's just 
good. You could be intentional. You could be engaged and make moments that matter for both you and the recipient. I love how you said that. I know you did. I threw that moments in there. I love the title. <laughs> there you go. You know that's what this conversation is about, Jim. I love that. And you know, it's funny because you've already shared so many stories about these moments that happen. And you once shared a story with me about your work with Jimmy Carter. Would you mind sharing a little bit with our listeners about that experience and some of the work you did prior to this role? After I learned HR and was, you know, very well-developed at Amico Corporation, that same vice president of research who promoted me and saw something and put me in the role came down with strep throat. Well, he was scheduled to present to the Georgia Chamber of Commerce on the following Monday. I got the call from his wife that he was not feeling well, and could I do the presentation for him? So I remember I drove to his house about 20 miles from mine, picked up the slide, stayed up that night to present on behalf of my boss. At the end of that presentation to the chamber, uh, a guy approached me and I was just trying to get out and get back to work. He said, do you have a minute? President Carter would like to speak with you. And I didn't think the President Carter. I just took it that president of, you know, some organization. And and I said, well, let me get you my business card. You probably want to reach out to the vice president of research as I shared in the presentation. I just stepped in in the last minute. He said, no, no, he, he wants to talk to you. And I remember almost being annoyed that I wanted to just get to my car, but I wanted to not come off so standoff. So I said, sure, I only have a couple minutes. So I'm following this guy. And all of a sudden, I see a crowd of people. And then it was just like, slowly they just start to part and go to the left and the right. And in the middle, sitting at this table was President Carter. And I looked and I said, oh my gosh, you mean President, President Carter. (laughs) So in that time is when he thanked me and said he enjoyed the presentation. At first he asked, do you know who I am? What do you know about me? And I chuckled. I said, of course I know who you are. I can't say I know a lot about you. I said, did you like carry your own luggage on a plane or something one time and they were upset that you did that and he laughed you know i just the little stuff out there he's i said so really i don't know a lot about you he said well let me tell you about my center and so all presidents build a library but what president carter did not only did he build a library he built a center to do the global work that he says he admits that he thought he would be able to do as a president And he said how naive I was. He said, I forgot there was a thing called Congress and Senate and all of those other things that you just can't do what you want to do. So it was during that time he recruited me because I was like, how cool would it be to work for any former president? But also his passion around conflict resolution strategies around the world, global health. I was with him when he started Habitat for Humanity. At the time, I also was oversaw his board governance and Colin Powell was the chair of the board at the time. It was just a great honor to work with him, but it was while working with him that I realized that I would forever seek to work for purpose and meaning because that is when I realized you can work for any organization and products are fine. We need people to do that. We need our products, right? But that's where I you know, went from oil to every day having a purpose and changing the lives of individuals, countries. We eradicated guinea worm disease while we were there. It, it just did so much. To At that point, that is what attracted me to 
purposeful and meaningful missions. And from there, I moved on to work with the American Cancer Society and ultimately in uh, healthcare today. That's just one of the most amazing stories, Jim. I love it because I love how you, how they were shuffling you around to go meet President Carter and then you see him. And I can only imagine uh, how you felt in that moment of realizing it was actually former President Carter. I felt kind of stupid because I remember being annoyed that I was just trying to get this guy my boss's card and he wouldn't take it. And what if I had really just been just a jerk and said, no, I don't have time and just left? That those moments that you don't create, they just happen and you you go with it. And, you know, I always say it's that intersection of opportunity and preparation. Just always be prepared for whatever that next step is and just know that you, in many cases, don't have control over how it happens. So I've just been really blessed with career transitions like this which is why I want to retire soon because I've never had a bad job and I want to retire before I have one because, you know, they're out there. <laughs> oh my goodness. I love that. But you know what, you know what I will say though? Yes, it is. I agree with you. Opportunity and preparation. I agree, but also you did it. You know what I mean? You still leaned in. You still went and met him, even though you didn't really want to, or you didn't necessarily feel like it was your place because you were like, this is my boss's thing. But I feel like the more we say yes, the more happens. And no just gets in the way. And that is, you know, what I said before, being open to the not so obvious or things that are bigger than you, just being open to the universe and being honest and transparent and meeting good people leads you sometimes down great paths. You talked about purpose and meaning, and I feel like right now that is something that I know we're all talking about in healthcare, which is how can we help healthcare workers start to really realize their purpose is being fulfilled here so that we can start to prevent the mass exodus that we're having of healthcare workers from our industry. What are some ways that you can recommend of how people can help drive purpose and meaning in their teams and across really big organizations like you do? One of the things we did early on during the pandemic in our attempt to ward off the great resignation and the burnout and the stress was to, again, be very intentional with leaning in, talking to leaders, having authentic conversations. But we also realized that just in healthcare, it was just, it's just stressful for everyone, right? The last two years. So it really didn't matter whether you left us and went to a competitor or whether we hired you, the work was the work. So we realized that the differentiator for us would be culture. They say all the time, people don't leave organizations, they leave people, leaders. So we wanted to double down on our culture and remind people we all went into healthcare because of our passion uh, for the field, for helping others. But Sometimes people need to be reminded of that. So during the pandemic, we surveyed our entire organization, got about 18,000 responses, and it was simple questions like, tell us why you like working here. What are the two best things about your job? What are some opportunities? And from that, we were able to roll up into a new set of what we call our culture commitments. And it's things like we create a safe space where all belong. That's where a lot of our DE&I work come in. We earn trust in all we do. These just sound like catchy phrases, but there's a lot of work behind it to support it. So we earn trust in all we do. Well, if that is the case, trust has to be critical 
to a leader's success, or it has to be uh, a part of the performance management system. You have to hold people accountable to not only instilling trust in others, but having folks feel that they can trust their leader as well. And that's just not intuitive to everyone. So we did a lot of training and webinars and TikToks. I did my first TikTok, rolling out these commitments, and we had fun with it. And it provided people just a deterrent from what was happening day to day in our hospitals. So I believe our culture has helped us. Now, we're still struggling with staffing like everyone else. And if you know a good place where I could go and get some RNs, please tell me. I would get up and go today. But Overall, people tell us that it's the culture and that work and that commitment to things like DE&I and engagement that's kept them where we are. And of course, we've done a lot of things monetarily as well. So I always tell people, look at your culture, because what we're hearing right now is it's the great resignation. But I think it's more the great awakening. You know, people had time. We had a lot of time. And I have some friends and family members who are making bold moves that I love it for whatever reason, they were afraid to go out on their own or they were afraid to start that photography business that they've always wanted to do. And people became a little less fearful in taking the steps. So, you know, I think it's the great awakening as well as burnout. But in healthcare specifically, people are very focused on the mission. You find that across healthcare as an industry, but it is truly a lot of work and you just have to lean in and let people know that you're there the great awakening is happening within healthcare, I think, in so many ways where people are realizing, you know, what do I want to do as a nurse? You know, what do I want to do as a, a CNA or a PCT? And I think thinking that through in a real way will help people go into the positions where they're meant to be, but they have to have the culture that supports them to be able to want to stay because the work is really challenging. Glad you brought that up because that's something I forgot. During our survey, of several times during the pandemic, career development opportunities was always in the top two or three that we were hearing. No surprise, you hear that in your annual engagement surveys as well. But we also doubled down on our career development conversations. We have a career development center that we started within Atrium about four years ago. You have people who may love the organization, they may love healthcare, but physically, they can't do the RN work. It's a lot of lifting and shifting and 12-hour shifts and number of patients. And so we introduce people to other careers. I'm one of the guys who almost pass out at the site of certain procedures. So I'm in administration for a reason. <laughs> you know? So I tell people there are other jobs in healthcare other than being patient-facing, although we value those, there are others. And so being able to show people that you have the requisite skill set from what you've done as a nurse that can be extrapolated to some of these other work priorities. And people are enjoying being able to move around and do different things. And we're enjoying keeping them within the family. You did mention that you did a TikTok, and I really don't want us to gloss over that, Jim. Can you share about the TikTok that you did? I didn't want to do it. But again, it's the things you do for your team. So I was filming uh, something for uh, a message for Martin Luther King Day holiday. And one of the two of the guys on my team, they came to my office to film this. I think it was going to be shared locally here in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. And so they set up my office, filmed me. And on their way out, they were like, you know what would be cool? Since we're rolling out these new culture commitments, and there are five of them, wouldn't it be cool to do a TikTok? 
I was like, are you kidding me? No, I'm not doing that. Although I do love TikTok, but not to be in one. And they were like, no, we can roll this out. And they like, let us just pick some music you like. So they picked some music and I think it was Earth, Wind and Fire. I was like, oh yeah, that's my jam. I like that. Yeah, I like that. So these guys in their late 20s, early 30s. So I'm like, I'm going to look stupid. Nobody's my age on TikTok doing this. So they convinced me to do it. And they played the song and I would just point. They told me to point in different directions at certain beats. And I did it and had fun with it. And then they showed me the final product. And I didn't realize that where I was pointing was where they would put a commitment, our commitment of belonging. So at the bottom of it, it said, which of these commitments resonate most with you? And so we put it not only on TikTok, but we put it on our internal YouTube, Yammer, all of that. And I just learned on Friday when I was traveling with a chief of staff to a, one of our hospitals, he said, you've gotten 11,000 views of that TikTok. I was like, is that good? He's like, yeah, that's great. That's how it happened. I, you know, I don't even want to look at it. Uh, just as long as it's resonating with the team, that's fine. Love that, Jim. I love how you dove into that. We have to go out of our comfort zone sometimes. We really do. I think back to how you went from a lab coat to a suit, as you said. Is there another time, it doesn't have to be professional, where you went out of your comfort zone? I try to stay in it as much as possible. But I will say this, just like the TikTok example, if people follow Myers-Briggs, I'm an ISTJ. And many people will say that's almost like an engineering profile, standard engineering profile. So I'm way more introverted than people realize. So when it comes to extroverted things where the team needs to be uplifted, I do that all the time. And it's not because I want to do it. I'm not the type of person who even likes the front stage. But if I have something that can be motivating, engaging for whatever it is to anyone, I'll stand on my head and do it, do a TikTok. You know, I'll make fun at myself. So there's no one moment that stands out because I've now learned how to just be uncomfortable. I tell you one that happened during the George Floyd. You know, so at that point, we're hurting as a country. Organizations are like, what do we do? What do we do? And our CEO, he just said, well, we're going to have conversations with our team and we're going to have authentic conversations. And so he requested six or seven of us from the executive team to hold these open forums that we call crucial conversations. And I was on one with him. And he was so vulnerable about something that had happened when he was pulled over by a police officer in South Carolina when he was a sophomore in college. And from that moment, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe he's sharing in this way. But you could see that and it was an African-American male group. Some of them were almost in tears. A couple were just hearing him be vulnerable in that way. And as I thought, I was like, okay, I hope he ends the call. We're going to clap and say, thank you. And it's over. He was like, Jim. (laughs) So in that moment, I don't, I won't go into the story. Now I shared a story that I had never shared in my entire life. I had never even heard myself utter the words, but it was just something that had happened to me that was very hurtful back in high school. Think about that in high school. And it was in that moment when he was that vulnerable, I shared. And so, you know, I think that was been one recent one where I stepped outside of my comfort zone, but I stepped outside because I was following my own leader. What a story of the 
beauty of vulnerability and how it can transmit across people. Thank you for sharing that. So for taking a beat and asking some questions, I'm going to ask you some speed questions that are going to be outside of work related. Okay, let's go. When you are not at Atrium, what are some of the hobbies that you can be found doing? Tennis, tennis and tennis. Love it. Okay, perfect. What does less than 10% of your work family know about you? Gosh, I feel like they know me so well. Well, people are surprised. When I was 12 years old, my uh, grandmother taught me to bake. So I find during the holiday season, baking pies and cakes and giving them away to folks is just kind of fun and stress relieving and reminds me of when I learned to bake. So people wouldn't expect me to do that. I don't even expect me to do that, but I only do it in hol- on holidays. What are your specialties? Everything not good for you. Pound cake, <laughs> peach cobbler, uh, red velvet cake, sweet potato pie, all of that stuff. You're making me hungry, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Final question. If there was one thing that you could be exceptionally fantastic at that you're not already great at, what would it be? And it could be real or it could be supernatural? I would say I would love to act. I would love theater, not like television acting, but like theater, like local theater. And I say that when I retire, other than tennis and probably, you know, enjoying grand slams, I I would like to become active in local theater. It was something I did in high school wasn't good enough to see it as a career, but I've always had that interest in local theater. I think the TikTok is kicking off a new, a new <laughs> version of you, Jim. Maybe that, that the would, maybe that will be it. Maybe that will be it. The, the owner of Theater Charlotte, she works with us on our Atrium Has Talent event that we do every year. So I haven't approached her yet. I want to wait a few years, but I'm going to tell her. Later on, if you have a a scene for an old man or something in one of your plays. Let me play it. <laughs> I believe in you. I, lo- I love that idea. I love it. And you know, you might get a couple more views and, and someone may end up just re- referring you. You never know. Jim, thank you so much for your time. This was such a great conversation. So energetic and just inspirational too. And I, and I appreciate you um, being on this with me. Thank you. This is a great opportunity. Keep an open mind, drive towards your purpose and sometimes take the circuitous route. Maybe you'll change someone's life. I'm Rebecca Corin-Mutter. Thanks for listening to Moments Move Us. Remember, when you put people first, your actions can move others in unexpected ways. Be sure to follow wherever you get your audio.